Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. Before I kick off with the show, I'd really like to acknowledge that I'm broadcasting today on the lands of the original storytellers of this place, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, here where their sovereignty was never ceded. I pay respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. On today's show, the Melbourne Writers' Festival has come early this year, running from last Friday until the 16th of August, and it has dived headlong into the digital format with a range of in-conversations with local and international writers, including... Kevin Kwan, Anne Enright, Jessie Tu, Elizabeth Strout, Becky Manawatu, Jing Jing Lee and Thomas Mayer, just to name a very few of them. With recently released books out, a couple of ex-Prime Ministers are also weirdly on the bill, along with geopolitical commentator George Friedman and many others seemingly pitched to appeal to a very broad audience. Events offer pay-what-you-feel options ranging from free to $50 and small increments in between. And tonight is the official opening night gala. The theme, Are You Paying Attention?, with speakers set to, according to the Melbourne Writers' Festival site, explore, interrogate and challenge what holds our attention, what fails to and why. One of those speakers is Jess Hill, winner of of the Stella Prize for her stunningly researched and utterly gut-wrenching Uh, but necessary book about domestic abuse. See what you made me do. Jess will join me later in the hour. But soon, Mina is just about to get much, much closer to Jack, her gorgeous and frustrating colleague, when she gets a call, her mother. A housebound recluse since the death of her husband 12 years ago has been spotted leaving the house. Mina hops on a plane from Heathrow to Melbourne and all the things she has been running away from for the past seven years. Victoria Hannan's Kokomo, winner of the Victorian Premier's Award for an unpublished manuscript, is a sharply observant coming-of-age story, striking directly at the moment when the image of our parents shift to reveal a more nuanced understanding of the people who raise us. Victoria Hannon joins me very soon. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. Mina and Elaine were engaged in a duel, moving around each other in a silent dance, trying to avoid the sharp point of the other's foil. Adulthood is just getting used to the things you can't avoid, Mina told herself as she walked past tall wooden fences, low white ones, manicured lawns of verdant green. Mina has blown off the possible start of something with her crush Jack back in London to pick up the threads of the life she'd fled in Melbourne and in particular to work out why, after hiding in her house for over a decade, her mother Elaine might finally be showing signs of shifting. 
That's the plot of Kokomo, loosely anyway, uh, and that's Victoria Hannon's Victorian Victorian Premier Award-winning debut novel, a sharply observant coming-of-age story striking directly at the moment when the image of our parents shift to reveal a more nuanced understanding of those who raise us. Victoria Hannon joins me on the line now. Victoria, welcome to Backstory. Thank you so much for having me, Mel. Now, I, I've been quite looking forward to uh, reading this book uh, since it was uh, announced as the Unpublished Manuscript Award winner, uh, and I don't feel at all disappointed um, by the wait. Uh, this really is a debut that's had a lot of discussion around it. How does that feel for you as a first-time author to have such high expectations of, uh, of your first novel? It's wonderful, but it's also a lot of pressure. And I think winning the VPLA for the unpublished manuscript comes with a lot of eyes and a lot of weight. Obviously, there have been some huge um, books and writers whose careers are very impressive who have come out of that award, like Jane Harper and Maxine Benieber-Clark. So a lot of big shoes to fill, but it's very rare that a debut writer will get such an opportunity to have so many people interested in their book before it even comes out. Yeah, look, and it's a very accomplished book. I think this is one of the things that that we have increasingly been seeing. uh, Well, certainly in my experience, uh, there have been a lot of really excellent debut novels by people who, like yourself, clearly do have the craft of writing already under their belt. Uh, I did notice uh, your your central character is like uh, yourself, I believe, um, someone who works in the sort of advertising creative industries as well. And I do wonder, um, does the kind of craft of doing that sort of jobbing writing really affect the art? Um, Yeah, I've definitely done the the debut author trope of um, loosely basing my main character on myself. Um, But definitely, I think I've been working in advertising as a copywriter for about 15 or 16 years, and I think just that daily discipline of having to sit down and write to a brief and write a certain amount of words every day, it absolutely kind of hones your craft and also gives you the ability to sort of write through your anxieties or maybe a writer's block because when you write for a living, you have absolutely no choice to sit down and get the work done. Can you describe the the loose plot of Kokomo? I have introduced it a a little bit. How would you describe uh, the book? Uh, So Kokomo begins in London with Mina. She's working in advertising as an associate creative director and she's working too hard, and she's falling in love with a pretty terrible man. Uh, and then one day she gets a phone call from her best friend back in Melbourne telling her that her mum has just left the house for the first time in 12 years. So Mina drops everything and jumps on a plane and flies back to Melbourne to find out why. And then when she gets here, she sort of discovers that life is in some ways exactly the same and in other ways very different, and she just has to reacquaint herself with life in Melbourne and also learn who her mother is again. Yeah, it's a really, uh, it's kind of a, a quite simple plot uh, that you've created. It's one that, you know, uh, on its surface might not be entirely unknown to most readers, certainly those of us um, who have done that that sort of usual fleeing Australia for a period of years only to come back and have to grapple with what we've left behind. So that's certainly at the centre of it. But there are other things. You're unravelling the sort of mystery of why her mother has, has kind of taken 
taken to um, to become this recluse for for over a decade. And there is a little twist in the novel that I won't give away too much about, but you do shift perspective at a certain stage. And I I didn't actually see that shift coming, but I think that it was done really really well, um, and it sort of shows the the quite. Um, heavy crafting that the book really has. It feels like a simple read, but you very definitely have a lot of control and mastery of not just language, but structure on your side. Did you really work through the drafting of this book? How? Because it feels like it was written, you know, uh, almost um, like, I, I, I suppose, just in one long outpouring, but it's very definitely got evidence of fine tuning and crafting. Um, it was written in, I guess, three long outpourings. So I go, I went through a strange drafting process where I um, decided to go to a writing residency and I sat down and I wrote the first draft in four weeks. Um, and at that stage, it was only told from one perspective. And so it took me about six months of kind of plotting and redrafting after that to get to the point where I was ready to write a full second draft. And I got about halfway through that and realized that something was missing and there was a whole other side of the story that needed to be told. And so I had about a day where I sulked for a little bit and then got back to work and just ended up writing that um, second perspective and it poured out quite quickly. Um, But then it was when I got to the third draft, which I again wrote quite quickly. Um, But I would say quite quickly. It was a, a month where I was working on it for about nine hours every day um, for that entire month. So I guess if you added all those hours up together over a longer period of time, it would feel like quite hard work. But, um, yeah, I think the the structure sort of came quite slowly and gradually, and I would kind of somehow just recognise where I knew I had to, had to put a... Um, a flashback, and then we did a lot of work in the structural edit as well to go through and to kind of insert different um, flashbacks and more information about different characters in their past. So it was partly me and then partly helped from a good editor that really helped me hone that, that structure. There's quite a lot of strands here because uh, while Mina is an only child, she's, uh, she's very much um, bound up in the lives of her uh, nearest neighbours and the family of her her closest friend. Um, so uh, the Chengs over the road are sort of the family she wished she'd had, uh, which, uh, you know, is a family where both parents are, are still alive. She's lost her father um, at the age of 20, which is, I guess, the sort of trigger for a lot of the, the kind of hard things that she goes through in her life. Um, but, you know, there's three children and, and she sort of sees them as an ideal family. That does kind of, you, you do get more depth uh, and nuance to that story as it goes through. But there are quite a lot of strands here. Did you did you really have to kind of think about how all of these relationships work? Because you're creating a, a kind of familial relationship, um, out, you know, that's that's more of a familial relationship with a family that's that's not her own. I wish I could say that I spent a lot of time kind of plotting out family trees and interconnected relationships, but they really just kind of came out in the writing process. And obviously I spent a bit of time after I'd done my main three drafts kind of really, um, I guess, uh, adding to those stories and kind of giving them a lot of meat. But really just those friendships sort of came out quite organically because um, obviously Mina, when she comes back, it's not just her mum that she's reacquainting herself with, it's her 
her friends and she also bumps into an ex-boyfriend as well. So um, she's got a lot of kind of ghosts from the past that she's grappling with. And I think the experience of also living overseas for a long time and then coming home, I really understand what that feels like to have to kind of reconnect with those people from the past. And so some of them are based on my real experiences, but they really just poured out quite easily. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Amel Cranenberg, and I'm talking to Victoria Hannon uh, about her book, Kokomo. Uh, it was the winner of the uh, Victorian Premier's Unpublished Manuscript Award, and uh, it is now um, receiving quite a lot of uh, very positive uh, acclaim since it was published. Um, I, I do feel like I, I should mention that I think there have been parallels drawn between this and Monkey Grip and other books that sort of show a, a, a kind of I guess, um, pivotal coming-of-age moment, complex relationships um, that, that may not be entirely positive ones, particularly with men. Um, do you feel that that's a fair comparison? Or, or, or I wonder what it is about the energy of these books that people feel um, have a likeness to them. I feel like that comparison is maybe, um, it's great for me, but maybe unfair to Helen Garner. I don't know. Um, I think people, I guess there's the Melbourne-ness of both this and Monkey Grip and also a scene at Fitzroy Pool. I feel like they're really the only main similarities. Um, Yeah, I think there's something about the coming-of-age story that people really relate to. And also I think when you're in your early 30s, we just expected, or at least I expected when I was in my early 30s, that I was going to have everything sort of worked out and I was going to know exactly what I wanted to do and I was going to have ticked all of these boxes that I thought I was supposed to tick at that age and I know very few people who have actually managed to do that and so I think that's a really relatable thing for people for anyone of any age who's sort of flailing and isn't exactly where they thought they were going to be at that age. Yeah, it's a really interesting one because I, while I was reading it, I was thinking about what it is that really makes this such a compelling book. And there are obviously those those kind of reflections that all of us can see ourselves in those moments when we're, we're not making great life choices or that that sudden realisation that we truly see our parents for who they are and we haven't before. I think those kinds of things do really resonate. But there is, there's a kind of sharpness in the writing that's hidden in, in a very readable style that I feel does kind of tend to, to give the reader a sense of, you know, a sense of urgency that, that belies the fact that, you know, really nothing hugely dramatic happens, although there is a kind of quite dramatic um, underpinning that I won't get too, too deep into because it is a little bit of a twist um but it's you know it's not it, you know these things even up until that point really did feel like some sense of urgency that you wanted to know more about Mina's life is that something you you really had to refine into the text or do you feel like just the fact you were writing about this period of time really just led to those kinds of things naturally coming into the writing Um, I think the fact that I wrote the book quite quickly and I was very aware of, um, I had certain plot points that I knew that I wanted to hit and I had them kind of, I mean, nothing hugely dramatic happens, but there are a few peaks of kind of drama and I'm quite obsessed with this idea of like small lives and action that is kind of contained in one house, for example, or on one street. And I feel like whenever you walk past anybody's house, you can 
it can be easy to forget that inside that house is its own drama going on and everyone in that house thinks that they're the centre of the world. And so I think I want some of that energy to come through in the writing. Um, and I did, I did also want it to feel quite energetic and I wanted people to feel like they couldn't stop reading. Um, and I think also because most of the action actually takes place within one week, I think that also helps with the energy of it too. Yeah, it's really you do um, use the kind of time slippage quite well to give, you know, the backstory for a lot of the action and keep it keep it moving with that sense of um, immediacy as well as, as the kind of background to, to the action at the same time. Um, the characters are really vividly painted as well in, in, sh- in small strokes. I feel really strongly that, you know, the sharpness of your copywriting skills have come into play here. Um, I do ask this of a lot of people who, particularly those who are, um, you know, debut or first-time um, novelists or writers um, of books, what advice they would give uh, to either their their emerging writer self or to others who are still grappling with a manuscript or considering it. Uh, you did talk about the kind of long uh, hours you spent working on this book, but are there other things in the craft that you would you would talk to uh, to writers about? I think I spent a, a long time trying to write things that I thought I should be writing and I had three manuscripts that I worked on before this one and they all just didn't feel like my natural voice and I think when I really hit on something with Kokomo was when I realized that I was just writing exactly as the words came out I wasn't trying to do anything that I thought I should be doing it was just purely my voice on the page and I think that's probably the best advice that I could give to anybody is just like trust your voice Stop trying to write the way you think other people want you to write and just just do it the way you want to do and write things that you want to read. Absolutely. I, I do want to just finish this interview with the beginning of the book because it's certainly a memorable beginning. Can I just ask uh, what made you decide to start with uh, that particular image of, uh, of your character and her, um, her kind of obsession, let's just say, with um, with a guy who really does not deserve her interest? Um, I just, I was standing on a train platform um, and I was on my way to work and I just got this idea to write that scene and I opened up the notes app on my phone and I just wrote it while I was standing on the train platform and it made me laugh and I don't know where it came from or why it happened but it's still there are a couple of jokes in there that still make me laugh and so I'm very glad that my publisher wanted to keep it in there because a few people have um, found it a little divisive um but as you can imagine, and anyone who has read this will, will know what we're talking about. Um, but yeah, it, I thought it was just funny and it was um, really grabs people's attention. Well, yeah, grabbing attention is, is definitely um, one way to put it. And I, I did actually laugh at the start. And I think, um, you know, you're immediately sort of, I guess, um, both compelled and on site and slightly uh, interested and intrigued by, by why it and may, is... Maybe disturbed. Too, disturbed, I, I think, definitely does um, does does come to mind. Uh, I, I'm going to leave people with that little tease, if you like, um, so you can figure out uh, what the start is all about, um, just... To give people a little sense of it, it is a sexy time beginning, so um, so you've got a little bit of warning about what you're in for, but uh, definitely um, a memorable start to an excellent book. Victoria Hannon, thank you so much for joining me today on Backstory. 
Thank you so much for having me. That was great. Uh, that was Victoria Hannon, whose book Kokomo is out now through Hachette. Coming up next, she won a stellar for See What You Made Me Do, her exactingly researched and brutally revealing book about domestic abuse in Australia. Now, Jess Hill is one of a number of writers appearing tonight at the Melbourne Writers' Festival Digital Gala to ask, are you paying attention? Jess Hill joins me on the line soon. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. You're listening to a backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg. Are You Paying Attention is the theme of this year's Melbourne Writers' Festival Gala, which, like the rest of this year's festival, has been running from last Friday until uh, the 16th, is entirely online um, as interviews, conversations and workshops, all digital and almost all on demand, with a pay-what-you-feel price option, making it perhaps more accessible than ever. One of the six writers featured in tonight's gala and addressing the question of what holds our attention or what fails to is Jess Hill, whose stunningly researched and exacting picture of domestic abuse in See What You Made Me Do won her the Stella Prize and shone a bright light once more onto an issue that desperately needs such clarity of thought, nuance and humanity. Jess Hill joins me on the line now. Jess, welcome to Backstory. G'day, Mel. Thanks for having me. Uh, such a pleasure. I, um, like many, read your book and was uh, both overwhelmed by the scope that it covers, mm. but also uh, amazingly um, impressed with the amount of research and and real kind of breadth of research that went into it mm. that really showed this issue in a way that I, I've really never seen it shown before, covering all of the things that, that really need to to be worked on, or at least a, a good picture of them. Um, I do want to talk about that a little bit in the context of uh, tonight's event, uh, which is really um, about kind of, I guess, how to, to get people's attention with issues like those, for example, in your book. Is that going to be central to what you're discussing tonight? Yeah, and, you know, it was, it was strange. Like, when I got the brief from, from Jean, who's directing the festival, to talk for 10 minutes on getting attention, I think I really... I, I was kind of avoiding the subject. I think I was avoiding talking about getting attention on these really hardcore, serious issues um, because we're, like, in a really stressful moment, right? You know, and a lot of people... Um, they're having their careers interrupted. They're stuck at home, you know, educating their kids, especially in Melbourne, um, you know, in ways that are making them feel really trapped. And so part of me wanted to sort of, I don't know, like at first I thought, maybe I can make a bit of a joke or maybe I can talk about the science of how we give or don't give attention and why. And then I was like, oh, who are you trying to kid? Like, (laughs) you are engaged in these really serious, you know, um, make or break life or death situations 
pretty much on a daily basis, um, especially after finishing the book. You know, this is this is what I deal with every day. And um, and I spent four years obsessed with how to get people to not just pay attention and sort of go, oh, that's shocking, but to, like, read 125,000 words on the subject and then take, you know, go away from that and actually to have that all of that emotional connection made by the book and intellectual connection sort of transfer into a type of conviction or a type of reflection on their own lives. So I just thought like, you know, stop trying to, I don't know, just be entertaining or be, you know, or or be uplifting because let's face it, you know, <laughs> this is this is the stuff that you're dealing with. But I think always when we're talking about what we give attention to or we don't give attention to, what we're looking at is what we find fascinating, what we resonate with on that deep emotional level. Um, and so we don't need to sort of like, you know, make it light or whatever. This is the stuff of our lives. Even if we have nothing whatsoever to do with domestic abuse, all of the issues that are central to it, power, shame, intimacy, love, fear, these are all things that are in our everyday lives in various ways. Um, so let's not be afraid of talking about it and be all Australian and be like, oh, let's avoid it, you know. <laughs> so well, that's what I came to. <laughs> absolutely. I, I feel like, you know, really reading your book, um, Jess, that, you know, the fierce urgency of long-form journalism, which seems a contradiction in terms because obviously mm. this is years of investigation and such a thoroughness to it as well that really you can feel um, that you have, have you know, put your entire sort of skill set to this task um, and and really gone there in terms of, of asking all the difficult questions as well, really looking into angles that, mm. that may be unpopular angles uh, but that you really felt you needed to cover and uh, in certain cases expose mm. for, for what they were. Um, but, but that, I, I guess... What I, I came out of the book feeling was the absolute necessity of that that kind of investigative journalism in really getting attention that should be mm. gotten as opposed to uh, just, you know, hot takes or um, personal opinions. And certainly there is a huge place for that and own voices mm-hmm. and all these other things. But do you really feel like part of what you're sort of, uh, I guess, out there advocating for is this kind of, of really clear-eyed investigation? Yeah, and not and clear right in the sense that as you say, like there's there's room for hot takes and there's room for that sort of polemical type of op ed writing and I understand people's anger, you know, and I have certainly shared some of that anger um during the writing process. But what I was trying to do and I think that the term clear eyed is really right, is that like I was just trying to I was trying to work through my own issues with my own angry reactions and rageful reactions to what I was um, researching and, and talking to people about, um, and that really connect it back in with people's humanity, you know, and and connect it back in from a from a calm and integrated perspective, you know, um, what this looks and feels like. And I think like when I was trying to, you know, every morning I would wake up. And the first thing in my mind, like anyone who writes a book, was the book. But the first, the second thing was, 
how do I get people to read about this incredibly difficult subject? How do I make sure they don't hit a patch that's either too difficult or is boring and makes them put the book down and they never pick it up again? Um, what, is the, what is the balance between atrocity, between um, analysis, investigation, and just the stuff that makes us sit up, not just take notice, but really care about the things they're reading about, especially if we've not had direct connection with it in our lives. Um, you know, as many people will, well, at least they'll start the book thinking they've never known anybody or been related to anybody who's had um, anything to do with domestic abuse. And then often when they finish the book, they realise that actually I've got all of this history in my family background or I myself... You know, I had, a, I had a Facebook message from a reader just yesterday, and it was interesting. I hadn't seen a message that had come in a couple of weeks ago, and it said, um, I'm reading your book. I've never had any, um, you know, connection with coercive control or domestic abuse, but I'm finding it really enlightening. And then this next message that came in a fortnight later said, I just finished your book, and I just realized that my last relationship was a coercive controlling relationship. Um, and I just thought that I was depressed and anxious. Um, and I didn't realise what was causing that, you know. So there's, I think that what I was trying to do is really bring it into people's immediate awareness in the sense that this is stuff that affects all of us. If you've got a statistic like one in four women have experienced domestic abuse since the age of 15, um, if you've got statistics like around one in four children will grow up in an abusive household, I mean, there is just no way that you don't know someone um, or that it's, and it's very unlikely that you've got no family history with it, even, you know, even if it goes back a couple of generations. I was thinking quite a lot about your book as well in the light of uh, some of the changes that have come in after the, the Royal Commission um, and, you know, really thinking about whether those things have, have helped or uh, in fact hurt uh, in certain circumstances. I think there's reports of both and certainly you cover the nuance of some of those things as well in looking at uh, how the court system can be used as a, a form of abuse, um, mm. especially when it comes to, for example, um, you know, child uh, care arrangements. Um, mm. And it, it's a really it's a really interesting uh, case do you feel like there have been some really positive moves um, since the Royal Commission or do you think that now more than ever we need to look into the the nuance of these cases well there's yes I mean absolutely in Victoria there have been um, amazing um, improvements but of course you know we have state systems and we have federal systems and the family court system is a federal system so unfortunately in the Royal Commission it could only be sort of alluded to so all the issues like for example just to make it sort of clear where we stand with family court we have the majority of cases going through family court um, including allegations or a history of family violence but we have 83% of cases ending up in shared parenting um, and only, I think it was like 1% to 3%, I can't remember the data exactly, where there is no contact ordered um, with, say, for example, the father. Um, so, you know, it's like, if you think about the kinds of domestic violence we hear about where children are present, and I think that the only, like, at the, that tiny little percentage of cases is, is there to be no contact between the offender and the child. Like, you, you're looking at families across Australia and, and, you know, victim survivors and their children having to negotiate extraordinarily difficult and dangerous parenting arrangements. Um, now, that is something that couldn't really be addressed by the Victorian Royal Commission. It's unfortunately 
being, I think, incredibly badly handled at the federal level because we now have an inquiry co-chaired by Pauline Hanson and Kevin Andrews, which is, uh, in my opinion and the opinion of the domestic violence sector, um, largely a waste of time or worse, you know, a stop to the men's rights, the anti-feminist men's rights movement. So, you know, there are some things that I think we've come forward in. I think we're um, definitely coming forward in awareness, um, just even awareness, say, for example, of what goes on in the family law system has just gone through the roof, you know, since I started reporting on it in 2015 when barely anyone was talking about it. So all of this is great, and awareness is great, but we do have a lot of awareness now. So it's like, you know, we need that commitment, and we need governments to really commit to, you know, targets or some kind of outcome that they are on the hook for in their term of government. You know, who is saying we are going to halve the domestic homicide rate? You know, they're the sorts of targets that, that are set around drink driving um, <clears throat> campaigns to reduce drink driving, campaigns to reduce smoking. They've all got targets that um, that governments are on the hook for. But in, unfortunately, in the domestic violence area, our national strategy to reduce violence against women and their children, there are no targets to reduce anything. And what we've been told is in the last, you know, iteration of that plan, which is supposed to end in 2022, we're being told that actually we're not going to see any reduction in the statistics of domestic violence until we achieve greater gender equality in maybe 10 plus years. Um, so I think that while on a state level Victoria has done incredibly well and it became an election issue after Luke Batty was murdered and Rosie Batty sort of stepped up into that incredible advocacy role, um, but Federally speaking, I think that it is just not hardly not on the agenda, and that's a real shame. I think uh, it's becoming all the more um, apparent with a lot of newsroom closures, etc., that you know the, the importance of journalism in getting things on the agenda. Uh, we don't have very much time, unfortunately, right now to talk more about this, but I, I do just want to end on a very brief note with uh, what have you got your attention trained on at the moment? Uh, because I feel like it's really important to to keep uh, journalists um, working and, and in um, in the public interest, obviously, uh, in uncovering stories like this and um, that, you know, that require complexity and skills. Well, Mel, I'm actually coming to you from the Downing Centre Court in Sydney um, from their domestic violence list day. So I can say that my attention is still very firmly trained on this issue. Um, I think that the people that I spoke to and have now, you know, become quite close to, the victim survivors, their children, um, you know, as I say, tonight... They just got my attention and now I can't let it go. And I, I'm not really just a journalist anymore on this issue. I'm a, a lot of things. I'm not even sure what I'd call myself. But I can't know about what's going on in this area and not do my absolute utmost to try to achieve some positive change. Well, uh, Jess Hill, I... I... Um, can only say um, you have certainly gone a long way to raising awareness and uh, to now yourself becoming, I guess, an advocate. Uh, that's just fantastic. And this book uh, is absolutely a must read. And I look forward to uh, seeing you tonight uh, at the mm -hmm. Melbourne Writers Festival Gala. Thank you so much for joining me today on Backstory. Thanks so much, Mel. That was great. Uh, that was Jess Hill, uh, who is the author of See What You Made Me Do, uh, an incredible and absolutely necessary book and one that sadly is all still 
too necessary. Um, things have changed somewhat, but not nearly enough. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.